Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. We are working our way through this, <clears throat> this really encouraging New Testament letter written by Paul to a church in Thessalonica, much smaller than this church, very likely. And I have thoroughly enjoyed it. We're, we're coming down to the end. We've got two more Sundays. This Sunday and then next week we'll handle the last few verses and this great idea of sanctification or how Christians grow in Christ. And then we'll, we'll move on into something else. But um, I will miss this letter. I, I have uh, really enjoyed it. It reminds me of Martin Luther, the great reformer, the great Protestant reformer who lived in the 1500s. And he would fall in love with books of the Bible that he I think Galatians was his favorite book, and he actually nicknamed it after his wife, so he called it his little Katie, which is a little weird, I think. Um, so I haven't gone so far as to calling First Thessalonians my little Jennifer or anything weird like that. But, um, and it's not my favorite book in the Bible. That would be either Romans or Galatians or Colossians or one of the other ones. But anyway, um, I do... I've just enjoyed this. It's been super encouraging for me. And if you're newer today, maybe you're visiting, um, our practice here at Crosspoint is just to work through books of the Bible. Um, on, on the vast majority of Sundays, we just pick a book and just kind of work our way through it. And we think that the Holy Spirit is wiser than we are, and He has written God's Word, and it's delivered His letters to God's people, and that we should work our way through them. Occasionally, we'll stop and do a one-off sermon, uh, but we just work our way through it. And it helps me because I'm about as creative as a telephone pole. And so <laughs> what's helpful is, is we just know what's coming next. And this particular text, as Paul is ending this letter, is, is a kind of like a utility drawer. Does there, everybody has a utility drawer right in your kitchen where you just sort of stuff all these little things in there that you may need? You know, like a, some tape and some scissors and nail clippers and, and paper clips and... You know what I'm talking about? I see some people like, yeah, maybe I need to clean out my utility drawer. Well, as Paul ends his letter to the Thessalonians, it, this is really just a, like practical instructions. Like, oh, I, I didn't get to this, so let me just throw this in there. But let's read this. Here's the challenge when we look at this text that's just full of practical instructions. Let's not forget the gospel, the truth upon which... These practical instructions rest and are writing on. So he has spent the whole letter speaking about, he, he begins talking about how God has, has saved these people. He's chosen them and he can see that his grace, the grace of God's saving work in their lives is evident because they're bearing fruit in keeping with their confession of faith. So they've believed in who Jesus is. They were sinful people. And God has rescued them. He's opened their eyes miraculously to see that we are sinners and that our only hope is what Jesus has done on the cross to bear the wrath of the Father. And he rose again from the grave, has defeated death and sin and all of its enemies and all of our enemies. And now he commands us all to repent and believe. That's, that's salvation. That's the gospel. We sang about it this morning. And then as a result of that, Paul says you're going to endure tribulation and struggle and trial and suffering. So he's giving them instructions in that. And then remember in chapter 4, we talked about how Paul was encouraging the church and instructing them further about uh, what it would look like when Jesus returns. So the hope of the Christian is not just that our past has been atoned for and that now we're living a life that's, you know, uh, in Christ, but that we're looking forward to this future when Jesus will come again and I'll praise God, just think about this, finally and fully vanquish all sin, all evil. There will be no more terrorists. There will be no more abortion clinics. There will be no more sin. There will be no more pornography. There are 37 million men in America right now nervously wondering whether or not their wife is going to find that their name came out on this ridiculous demonic affair seeking website called Ashley Madison, right? And there, have you heard about that on the news? And, and there will be no more of that when Jesus comes again and he will finally and fully vanquish sin. And I don't say that as if, you know, we're sinless as Christians, but we will finally and fully be purged of this wicked 
sin nature that still rests in us and Jesus will triumph forever and ever and ever and we will be with him forever. And on that foundation, Paul now gives us these concluding practical instructions. So I'm going to read through it, pray, and then we're going to work our way back through it. Um, And I've got an outline that we're going to hang our thoughts on, but uh, I'll give that to you in just a second. Let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 12 through 22. Paul writes these words, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Well, before I pray, I'm going to hang my thoughts on on an outline here. I think that this text, amongst many other things, gives us three trajectories about how to relate to one another in the local church, life in the context of being together as God's people. He gives us instruction on how to relate to leaders, how to relate to one another, and then how to relate to God. So we'll look back through that in just a moment. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, that you would speak to us, that you would, throughout the centuries, cause your people to write down these letters and words that have now been collected by the, the superintending and preservation of your Holy Spirit to be collected into what we know of as the Bible, which we can have great confidence in for a variety of reasons. We can have great confidence that this is your word, that you breathed it out through your people that you caused to write down exactly what you intended for your people, to be a revelation of your greatness to the world. I pray that we would hear what you're saying to us this morning. I pray that Christians would be encouraged, that our hearts would be warmed, that we would be convicted, that we'd be edified, that we'd be pushed along a little bit further down the line in our our Christ-likeness. I pray for unbelievers that are in the room today, and certainly there are some here in a room this size. I pray that Lord, you would do what only you can do, that you would give them a heart to hear and believe and trust in Christ, that you would give them the very life that they need to believe in Jesus, that you would give them what you require, and you would save many in this room today. I pray that you'd be glorified and your people would be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, I think Paul gives us instruction in the first couple verses of how we as people together in a local church are to relate to leaders. So let me read verses 12 and 13 again. He says, we ask you, brothers, he's speaking to the whole church now, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So I think clearly implied in here is that God has given leaders, He's given many kinds of leaders in in various kinds of roles, but I think what's in view here is that Paul, I think, is specifically talking about the pastors, elders. I think those words are synonymous in the New Testament. He's speaking about that particular office in the church, and he's saying to the church, these men care for and serve you, and you should live with them in a way, relate to them in a way that blesses both them and you. Now, certainly, I think this has application to it's kind of all people in, in leadership roles within the context of the local church. But I think what's in view here in particular for Paul is, is the pastors, elders of the church. And he says that they are to labor. In fact, they're to, he says that they're, they're to work 
very hard among you. That, that word labor, they're, they're really supposed to just grind it out for you. And, and it brings up this question, what is the job of pastors? Is it to be sort of the, the guy that the chaplain kind of that visits the hospital all the time or that has, you know, personal advice and everything. I think we can boil down what the role of a pastor elder in a local church into three, sort of three trajectories. First is that the pastor is to teach. He's to deliver God's word to God's people. And that's one of the reasons we just work through books of the Bible so we don't skip anything. We want to be God's mail carriers deliver God's word to God's people whether or not it's profitable whether or not it's whether or not it's popular whether or not people like it or not we are to deliver God's word to God's people secondly after teaching the word of God I think God's uh, the leaders in God's church the pastors elders are then to give practical instruction to help to guide people to help them apply it to their lives and to live before them in a way that that embodies and personifies and displays the the teaching so that their life is not inconsistent with their message that they're giving them. And then third, I think the role of the under-shepherds, of, which is what a pastor is, is to guard God's people from air. So, <laughs> um, I was telling the guys right before we came out here that I, uh, I, I've got this trial subscription of XM Radio in my truck, and I've, I've been listening to, um, I don't know why I do this to myself, just, just to get me going, I guess, I don't know. But I've been listening, I guess, and I don't mean to be, you know, um, well, maybe I do mean to be a little bit clear and harsh. But anyway, let me just, there's this Joel Osteen channel on, um, on Sirius XM Radio. And like if I forget to have coffee on the way in to work in the morning, I just dial that thing up and it'll get your blood pumping a little bit. Um, but, but I say this seriously and I don't, mean, I don't mean to like be like, ha, 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 mock. Like if you, if you listen, if you, see, there are many well-intended people who are wanting to follow God that listen to that stuff and it it is it's more than just harmless garbage it's heretical error right and that's just kind of an obvious example I mean when you're listening to it on the radio it almost comes across like a Saturday Night Live skit it's so clownish but there's other just false teaching out there. I mean, everything that's published in the Christian publishing industry or everything that's sold at the Christian bookstore or everything that you see on TV, some of it is filled with just error. And it's the, it's the responsibility of God-fearing, Bible-knowing, wise shepherds to guard people from false teaching. Paul outlines the qualifications of, of or the, the, the responsibility, not the qualifications, but the responsibilities of, of these leaders in God's church. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me read a few verses. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. He says this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Is that not a description of our age? We will accumulate uh, for themselves teaching to suit their own passions. Verse 4, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Nothing in there about church growth strategies, about how to get more people to come. It's just, be God's man, know the Bible, deliver God's word to God's people, and let the sovereign God, let the chips fall where he determines. So these leaders are to care for God's people by delivering God's word to God's people. And of course, nobody does this perfectly. I mean, I think of that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. It says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. And by that, I mean just, you know, telling people what they want to hear so that they can report, you know, a big attendance to their pastor friends when they go to their meetings. No, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So we're just here to deliver God's word. We, we should be, and you should be discerning along those lines. And if so, if we ever don't deliver God's word to you and we start wandering off into myths and fairy tales and three little principles about how to have a better Tuesday, you should raise up and say, stop it, give us God's word, Right?
Amen. Thank you for your zero passion on that, but I just, I'll just, okay, gotcha. <laughs> All right. But then he says that leaders, that the church should esteem them very highly in love. So how do you do this when your shepherds are incomplete, very much in process, very imperfect people? I think a couple thoughts here. And admittedly, this feels a little indulgent to even reflect on these things. But if I am to be the deliverer of God's word, then I need to preach this because for me to say, oh, well, this feels a little like I'm, I'm trying to tell the people how they should treat me in a, aw shucks, then I am sort of exalting sort of my aw shucksness above the word that you need to hear. Does that make sense, right? So get out of the way, Brad. Okay. So you, you should, I think we should appreciate our leaders. Let them know specifically how their service to God is helping you follow Jesus better. This doesn't mean that you never disagree with or don't set up a meeting to talk about something difficult that you're upset about with one of your pastors, elders, leaders. But it means that you do take time to think about how God is using them to bless you. Um, And maybe specific ways, like, hey, what you said there has helped me follow Jesus better this week. might be a a real encouragement to um, a preacher of God's word. Uh, And to realize what your leader's main responsibility is, is to deliver God's word, to be courageous in that delivery, and give thanks to God. A A bit of a personal reflection on this as I think about this, and I think about Ten years ago, we started this church with a very small group of people in our living room as a core group beginning to meet. Then we, a couple months after that, we started meeting in the old Mountain Hill Schoolhouse, and, which was a very unstrategic place to start a church. Paul Fincher and I were driving around looking for a building. We heard about this schoolhouse about 15 miles in the woods. <laughs> we, nobody knew where it was. It was a neat old building. We went in the building. It looked kind of cool and neat, and we are like, yeah, yeah, this looks good. We didn't take into consideration that it was not near any population base. Um, But, you know, the Lord has been just amazingly good. And I I think about, I think about just the past ten and a half years that since we started and pastoring this church, it it has humbled me. It it has humbled me in one sense because of certainly God's favor, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, but it's, it's humbled me because of because of just my naivete, my, my, my insecurities, my, um, just my weakness. I can remember being on staff at another church before we started Crosspoint. And, and then just as a Christian, since you know my college years, being in churches and sort of being on the sidelines or being on staff and looking at a, a lead pastor, a senior pastor, and thinking they'd do things. Not, ah, when I'm there, I'm going to do it better. Ah, you know, kind of harshly judging them. And every now and again, I'll just think, I just want to go back to all those guys that I was critical of and just give them a hug and repent to them and throw myself on their feet and say, I'm, so, like, I'm sorry. Oh, gosh, I had this. Oh, I didn't know. And I look back on the ways that I've led this church. And, I, and honestly, I look back with some regret. Um, just maybe a tone or a tenor or a decision or just a posture that I had towards something or some person. And yet in spite of that, I mean, this church has loved me and the pastor so well. It is such a gracious environment. I know I kid every now and again about getting zinger emails. And that's just me being silly. Those are few and far between. But let me, let me just like, take a word to say, like, I, I thank you. This, this is just, I love, like, I love being your pastor, and I, I want to, I want to die doing this. And there are dark days, and there are days when this young lady down here could tell you that where I am, I am so low I have to be scraped off the floor with a spatula. But in the midst of that, this church and you have been so gracious and so kind, and and you treat me and the other pastors so well, despite sometimes our missteps or our immaturity or whatever it is, and just just thank you. Thank you for that. So here's a question before we move on to relating to one another. Is there maybe some way 
that you or I need to tweak, maybe me relating to you, we as pastors relating to you, or is there some way maybe that you need to tweak or change of in your posture towards the leaders in your church? Maybe that leader's a pastor. Maybe it's your community group leader. Maybe that that leader is a room leader for children's ministry. And by the way, let me just pause to say thank you ladies that are, have put in so much work in these past few months organizing and working and getting those rooms ready. And you just said there's so many countless hours that have been put in behind the scenes. Just thank you. Maybe one of the ways that you can esteem those ladies who are helping to lead and serve us in that way is to promptly answer their email when they're asking you for your availability to serve in a room. I don't know. Or maybe you can just write a little note to your room leader and say thank you for the, for the way that you serve this church and you're a blessing and encouragement to me. Okay. Relating to leaders. Let's keep going. He says in verses 14 and 15 that we should relate to one another in a certain way. So let me read verses 14 and 15. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So, in verse 14, he, he gives us this description of three types of people that are mentioned in particular, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. Now, I think that there are certain people who are just maybe predisposed to be idle or lazy and maybe faint-hearted and weak. There's certainly spectrums of human strength and just toughness. But I think that we can't just stop there and say that this is a class of people who are always idle and faint-hearted and weak. But I think at various times in our lives, in the local church, just doing life together, we will realize that we at various times are all idle at times, all faint-hearted for particular seasons in our life, and all weak. These things can be said at, at certain times, even of the very strongest among us. So here's a case in point. In the Old Testament, there's this prophet, this man of God named Elijah, right? This will be good afternoon reading for you. First, first Kings chapter 18 and 19. First Kings 18 and 19. I'll just summarize this story for you. This prophet Elijah was God's man. And in First Kings chapter 18, he is like, he's on fire. He is, he is challenging and confronting these 450 false prophets of this false God named Baal. And he's challenging them to like a duel. At the, it's like the OK Corral. It's like Wyatt Earp, but biblical times and better in the Old Testament. And he says, meet me at the altar, you 450 against me, God's man. Let's build an altar. Let's sacrifice a cow. Lay it on the altar. You call for fire from your false god and see what happens. And then I'll call for fire from my god to see what happens and to consume this, this, this sacrifice on the altar. And so he says, well, you guys go first. And they build the altar of wood and they sacrifice this cow and they put it on the altar and they're calling on this false god who doesn't exist. Elijah's challenging, talk smack, uh, talking smack to him right there. And they're like, Baal, come burn up the sacrifice, consume it. Nothing happens. And Elijah starts taunting them. And he's saying, well, maybe your god's taking a nap. Maybe he's going to the bathroom, Right? And then after they were unsuccessful, he says, okay now boys, let me call on the real God. And says, but before we do that, let's pour water on the wood to make the wood wet so it's even harder to burn. Not once, not twice, but three times. Wet down the wood, put the cow on there, and he calls on the true and living God who comes down and burns up that sacrifice. And then after that, Elijah promptly takes those 450 false prophets and kills them. Next chapter. Would you, let's just pause there. Would you say that as a confidence-inducing event? Right? <laughs> like, boom! If God is for me, who can be against me? Next chapter. Word gets to this woman named Jezebel, who's upset at what Elijah has done. She sends word back to Elijah that I'm going to get you for that. And you would think if you just called down fire from heaven and slaughtered 450 of your enemies, that you would be like, I got this. I got this. 
And what does Elijah do? He takes off running because he's scared of this one woman, right? Is that not encouraging to you? The Old Testament man of God in one chapter is a beast. In the next, he's a butterfly. I just made that up. That was pretty good, actually. (laughs) And so then when we relate to one another, shouldn't this produce a, a certain amount of humility and graciousness? Right? It reminds me of those words from Richard Sibbs, one of my favorite Puritans. I read it often. This is becoming one of my favorites. Just read it a couple weeks ago from his book called The Bruised Reed. He says, the Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. That's us, by the way. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful dispositions. We must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. The Church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all have occasion to, ooh, that's a good line. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. Now listen, listen to me in particular, maybe newcomer, maybe visitor, maybe person on the fringes, maybe person that's just been here a little while, and you walked into this room, and everybody looks like they have it together, and people are kind of cute and sort of look like they're sharp, let me let you in on a little insider knowledge. They're not, right? They don't have it all together. They don't. And neither do I, neither does anybody, right? So there should, there should be this, this palpable sense of grace and patience in the local church. And that's Paul's, that's Paul's then instruction. He says, okay, you got these people who are idle and faint-hearted and weak, which at various times in our life is all of us. So therefore, we should be patient with one another. What does it mean to be patient? It means to be long-suffering or to suffer long. Well, how do we do that? I, I think we do that by, by remembering what God has done for us if we're Christians. Remember the grace that we have received that then he wants us to deliver unto other people. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, his, his recollection on his, on his ministry there. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So the guy who wrote half of the New Testament perceives himself as being the worst cat on the earth. But I have received mercy for this, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul is saying that he saved me, not so that I could then be frustrated and impatient with the weak and the faint-hearted and the idle, but that through me, God would display his patience to these people. So before we move on, let's just take a moment to think about a few enemies of this type of long-suffering patience. Um, I think, first of all, we talk about it a lot. I know I beat on this drum a little bit, and I beat on it because I'm often convicted of it in my own life, but I think that the enemy of patience is just the pace of modern life. We are all like little lab rats that they've given amphetamines to to just like spin around, right? And everything, we just, we just gotta go, 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 right? Everything, boom, just now, right? Everything, I mean, you know this Chick-fil-A on Bradley Park, Right? Do you realize how that is spoiling you, that little drive through situation there? <laughs> right? Now, they've got two lines. They, I mean, first of all, they shut down that Bradley Park Chick-fil-A a couple years ago to build that extra drive through and the nerve of them to actually shut down Chick-fil-A. Where am I going to go now? Right? So then they got this second line opening. But now, because, listen, this is a symptom. This is a little case study in the impatience of America. They don't just have one drive through line. They now have two. And because that wasn't working enough, they got kids out there, teenagers, all day long in the heat of the day, taking our orders electronically because, God forbid, we have to wait three minutes to get our chicken sandwich. (laughs) So let's trim that wait down from three to five minutes to a minute and 30. Because that minute and 30, that 90 seconds is a cinch. 
central to my life and well-being, right? <laughs> no, I mean, do you know that effect this has on you? Being on, a, being on a call, like a service call with somebody from another country? No, let's get, let's, let's get, let's, let's step on some, being on a service call with somebody from another country who has an accent and your internet isn't working and now that person who already probably has a bad perception of America because all the junk that comes out of Hollywood now has to deal with an impatient, rude jerk thereby confirming the stereotypes that they had and now the missionary that goes to India that tries to bring the gospel to that person has to overcome the barrier of the impatience of us. Right? And don't you think, oh, I know, somebody turn the air conditioner down, I can see people sweating. I, don't you think that that has, like, doesn't that transfer over to all of our relationships? We're impatient. I notice, like, I am the master at body English, like communicating without saying a word to my wife or to my children or anybody else to let them know I'm a Christian, I can hold it together, but I'm mildly displeased with the way you're making me wait. (laughs) Sila. which is Hebrew for meditate on this. And that sort of amphetamine impatience that we're all on produces in us a cynicism, right? It used to be our own little world was the car. Remember how you would never talk to people like you talk to them when you're in traffic, right? That, you know, because that was the only place you got to sort of privately see public, right? Isn't that weird, like road rage? Like it's been around forever. Like we would never, we would never talk to people like we talk to them in our car. Isn't that weird? But you know, here's what the social media and the internet has done for us. It's made us like in our little, in front of our computer screens or our iPads or our phones, it's made us sort of voyeurs of the rest of the world. And it's like we have this cynical road rage towards the world now, not just in our cars, but in front of our little devices. And we think about people and we judge people like we never would if we were face to face with them. And don't you think this has an effect on how we relate to one another in the local church? I mean, I bet you when we were singing that song and the wrong stanza came up, some of you were like, oh! Right? You know what it really is? All this is just a symptom of the disease of gospel amnesia. We forget. We forget what God, how patient God has been with us. Listen, listen to this parable that Jesus, I'm just going to read it. It almost needs no explanation. Matthew 18, verse 21, starting. Then Peter came up to him, and he Jesus, and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times. And so in view here, let's not just zero it into forgiving of sin, but let's, let's, let's broaden it a little bit to just patience with people. I think that would be a, I don't think that would be a faulty application. Verse 23, he offers this parable, Jesus, to highlight this idea of our lack of grace for other people. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He forgave him the 10,000 talents because of nothing but mercy and grace alone. But when that same servant went out, verse 28, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, a much less sum than he owed the master. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, he delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Mm. Mm. So here's a question. Are you suffering from gospel amnesia in any of your relationships, particularly amongst your brothers and sisters here in this room? Well, let's finish up with the third, I think, trajectory that Paul puts us on. We looked at relating to one another, or re- relating to leaders, relating to one another. And finally, he gives us instruction on how to relate to God. Verses 16 through 22, let me read it again. He says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So embedded in just these few verses, there's multiple commands, and I'm going to group them together, and I think I see four short and forceful commands that Paul gives us in these, in these verses. There's more, but I'm, again, I'm grouping them together. The first three are that we are to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. And so when we read something like that, I think that we're prone to sort of detach this from practical reality because it's almost kind of like, well, Paul, how can we rejoice always or like pray without ceasing or give thanks all the time? And I think what sometimes happens is is that we develop a sort of detached, kind of almost detached, like a Christianese sort of, and we don't really understand the heart of what's going on here and we just feel like we need to have the right thing to say and bless God. And so we sort of put on our church face and we walk in the hallways. How are you doing? Oh, brother, just walking in faith and power. God's good. And you know, it just becomes kind of this sort of Christianese goofiness, right? I don't think Paul is saying that we need to be these people that walk around speaking this sort of Christianese that doesn't square with reality. I think that he's saying that there's this posture when we remember the gospel regardless of the circumstances that we're in that, that Gwen sang for so beautifully, that there is this refuge that we remember the gospel and despite what may be going on around us, we can have this posture, even in our sadness, in the moment, rejoice. So let me read First, first Peter chapter 1, verse, starting verse 3. Super important text to see this. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God, now follow Peter's logic here. I want you to see this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, that, boy, that's, that's the heart of the Christian message right there. Paul, uh, Peter is saying is that you were dead in your sins. In other words, you needed to be born again. You're dead in your sins. God's grace hit you. He opened up your eyes. He gave you new life. He brought you back to life. Because of his grace, he caused you to be born again so that then you could look and see and believe that what Jesus did on the cross through his death for your sin, bearing God's punishment, and then his resurrection, defeating death, God caused you to come alive so that you could see and savor and behold and put your hope in that. That is the gospel. That you were saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So everything that you were guilty before God about has been atoned for by Jesus. 
secured, atoned for your past, has secured this future inheritance for you, which is life eternal with God. And now, even in your very moment right now, God's preserving you. So verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now look at verse six. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So what he's saying is, is that even though what you're going through right now is difficult and is grieving you, as you remember what God has done for you through his son on the cross, it gives you this abiding ability to rejoice despite the temporary circumstances that you're going through. Do you see that? It's like I told you last week when I almost got electrocuted by that downed power line in my house. I will never forget that because I remember what I could have been had it not been for God's grace. And when you remember that, despite the fact that you may be going through temporary trial and deep struggle, you can rejoice. And it doesn't mean you have to check your brain at the door and just say some little Christian trite phrase to somebody who asks you how you're doing. But it can be this abiding sense that God has rescued me. He has given his son to die for me. He has promised that I will come safely home and that there is this inheritance that waits me that will be far better than anything that I'm going through right now. And in that, I can rejoice and pray and give thanks and lean forward. And this little note, give thanks, I was, um, I was convicted about a week and a half ago. Somebody here at the church um, just in an encouraging way I think they were meaning to, I know they were meaning to encourage me, but they asked me, hey Brad, do you ever just sit at your desk and think about these past 10 years of what God, the Lord has done here at Crosspoint and just, you know, just stop and give him thanks? And it's like the Lord used that innocent and encouraging intended question to sort of pierce my heart and I thought, not as much as I should. <laughs> No, I really, I don't do that as often as I should. In fact, I told you a couple weeks ago, sometimes I sit in my office and I want to turn out the lights and binge on a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. And Paul is saying that despite what's going on around you, we can give thanks because God has been gracious to us. And then finally he says, and we conclude with this, he says these interesting few verses here that... Um, we could go much deeper into, but we won't. But let me just point you in a trajectory. Verse 19, 20, 21, he says, Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So he's saying don't put out the fire of the spirit, and you don't put out the fire of spirit by not despising God speaking, this word prophecy is a much debated word. It, it, it's not speaking of an Old Testament prophet who has authority like Elijah does. He's not speaking of a New Testament apostle. I, I think that this word prophecy, we see it in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul is speaking about this gift that's in operation in the church in the New Testament times and in his writing of these letters where this prophecy is not like we think of prophecy because we watch the Discovery Channel every year and we see these, uh, these documentaries on you know, Nostradamus or whatever and we have this faulty view of what this word prophecy means in the Bible in the New Testament. It's not so much predicting or foretelling future events. It's not some mystical or super spiritual esoteric word just for super spiritual people. But I think it is merely speaking about bringing God's word and God's truth to bear on his people in a poignant and powerful way. But even that word that the Bible calls prophecy in the New Testament is underneath the authority of God's written, established word, the Bible. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about these words of prophecy that need to be judged by the leaders of the church in accordance with the word of God. So there may be people who think that they have this word of prophecy that is not, is, is to be like, no, that's, that's not right. And that's why he says even this word, this 
This inspired word must be tested. And some of it may be good and some of it may be bad. So get rid of the bad and hold on to what is good. One commentator defines this, this type of speech in the church in this way. He says that a prophecy is a word given by God through an individual in order to meet one or more needs within the Christian community for guidance and direction, edification and encouragement, consolation or witness. So we could go much deeper into that, whether or not that is still in complete operation in the way it was in the New Testament in the church today. But I don't want us to miss Paul's point, is that we, we as God's people gathered together, as we relate to God, and as we rejoice, as we remember the gospel, as this humbles us on how we're to treat one another, we are to listen to God. So we are to listen to his word and not despise the teaching of God's Word, we're not to despise when the Holy Spirit speaks to us through His Word. So, we're to relate to leaders, we're to relate to one another, and we're to relate to God in this way. And what does God do with all of this? When a church does this, remember what Paul has been saying all along, that when we do this as God's people, He uses our corporate life together to put the beauty and the sufficiency and the richness of the gospel on display so that an onlooking world would look and see and taste and see and savor and believe in Jesus. That's what's at stake here. That's what Paul is commending to us. That's what we are to live like as a local church. Well, in a moment, I'm going to pray. Somewhere along the line, maybe something that you read, that we read, or I said, it's convicted you. Here's how you handle conviction. You don't say, ah, yeah, that part about being patient with the Indian guy on the phone. Uh, yeah, that was me. Or the way I judge people. Uh, that was me. Or maybe my ingratitude towards God. Yeah, that was me. Don't just sort of file that away as a helpful little thing that you heard and then move on to your chimichanga. Right now we need to respond to the Lord. We need to rejoice in God. We need to repent of our sin. We need to turn away from self-trust. We need to fly to Christ. Believers need to remember the gospel and repent of gospel amnesia. And if you're in this room and you're not trusting in Christ, you don't need to you know, think about different ways that you can live better. You need to run to Christ who is your only hope. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray. The band is going to lead us in some worship. And that is the time to passionately, earnestly, sincerely run to God. It's not the time to check your phone and wonder when they're going to wrap up and kind of zone out. That's the time to zero in and say, God, I don't want to despise when you speak to me. I don't want to ignore it. I want to, I want to grab all that I can of what you're saying to me. And I want to become all that you have called me to be. And I want to be a Christian that rejoices and is patient and is gracious and is fruitful and is long-suffering and God conform me to the image of Christ. And if God has opened your eyes and you walked into this room and now you realize that you're, that you're not trusting in Christ, you need to, you need to do whatever it takes to, to run to Christ, to look to him, to believe in him, speak to a Christian, come and talk to one of the pastors before the service is over. Don't let anything hinder you from running to Christ now, today, this morning. It's more important than anything that you can look at on your phone. Do it, even now. Let's pray. Father, as we respond now, through song, through prayer, through repentance, through those of us who are trusting in you and are Christians, through coming to the table and receiving communion and remembering our utter need of Christ and his work on the cross and his broken body and spilled blood for us. May you do more than just add to our file of helpful thoughts. But may you make us people who don't 
quench your spirit, who don't put out the fire through our impatience and our inattention and our lack of gratitude and our gospel amnesia. Let us see and savor the beauty of what it means to be rescued and let that light our hearts aflame and afresh and then produce this fruit of graciousness and humility and long-suffering in us so that collectively together we as your people would be a sweeter and clearer and more beautiful display of what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, would you do that? And any friends in this room have come not believing. Maybe they realized it. Maybe they came into this room thinking that they were all right with a holy God, but they've realized because of your sovereign grace and your Holy Spirit has opened their eyes in this past hour to make them realize that they are maybe trusting in themselves or trusting in their own righteousness. They're trusting in just a, a sort of ethic of morality and they realize that they can do nothing to make themselves right before a holy God and they must finally, for the first time, turn away from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Jesus. Lord, if there are people in this room like that, do not let them leave this room without turning from self-trust, turning from self-sufficiency, turning from their morality, and fleeing to Christ and putting their hope in Him. And friend, if that is you, you don't need to repeat anything or fill anything out. You need to look to Jesus and believe. You need to trust in Him. You don't need to have it all figured out. You don't need to remove all doubt. Despite, in the midst of your questions and doubt, you, you look to Christ and put your hope in Him and say, Jesus, I don't understand it all, but forgive me for rejecting you. Forgive me for trusting in myself. I put my hope, I put my faith, which is action in the midst of uncertainty. I put my hope and my faith in you. In that I rejoice. Do that right now, friend. And don't leave this room without speaking to somebody that you know to be a Christian. Do it even now. So Lord, would you, would you give that? Would you give that to us? as we respond to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.